You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Nailed It Podcast with, uh, here I am, Dr. Jay Fitz and with my co-host, Dr. Wendell Cole. If you're hearing his voice, he's a little, he's a little stressed and I, I can tell you why. <laughs> we, you know, we, uh, we're, we're both in the mi- middle of moving right now and uh, we both doing this little, how to decide, to rent or to buy. So... Dr. Cole, what, 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 what option are you taking? Man, look, I, I am taking the to-buy option. But the thing about it is when I when I started off, you know, they're like, you need X amount of money. And I was like, oh, great, that's not too much. And then, like, let about a week or so pass, and they kind of doubled and tripled. And I was like, hold on now. Exactly. They, they find these fees just coming out of nowhere. And next thing you know, it's, it's triple what you expected that you was going to have to spend. And I that's what happened to me. And I ended up in an apartment. So, yeah. But if you are listening to this and you're a resident or, or even a physician, they do have physician's loans that a lot of people don't know about. So that's what actually what I'm using. You don't have to come, you don't have to come with any money down. And it's pretty much a special loan that, that doctors get because they know we're in a lot of debt by the time we get into residency. So this is a loan that you can get, put no money down, and you kind of just like pay some closing costs and some other fees and got your house. I definitely agree. It's a great resource to use and take advantage of for, for us young docs. But uh, guys, I actually like finance, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. No, no, that's not. That's not. I'm glad we're back on track now. Um, so today we're going to talk about all about the meniscus with a good friend and a mentor of mine, Dr. Eric Strauss. Now, Dr. Eric Strauss completed his residency at the Hospital for Joint Disease up at NYU. He completed his fellowship in sports at Rush University Medical Center, and he is currently a assistant uh, assistant program director at Hospital for Joint Disease. So this was a great talk, and you guys enjoy our conversation with all about the meniscus with Dr. Eric Strauss. Dr. Strauss, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. And uh, we always love to start off with kind of just asking a couple of questions, just getting to know you uh, as a person. Um, so my first question for you would be kind of what made you go into in sports? Um, I always found myself gravitating to sports medicine, uh, both as a medical student and as a resident. Um, I like the patient population. Um, their mechanisms of injuries you know, always made sense to me, having played ball my whole life. And I really love the fact that it's, you know, of all the subspecialties in orthopedic surgery, it's the kind where, you know, something is uh, either torn or incorrect and you fix it and you get a pretty rapid uh, realization of your efforts with patients getting back to play, um, back to their usual activities pretty quickly, and they're usually very uh, pleased with the outcome of their procedure. So, you know, despite the fact that I was always open to things like joint replacement and trauma and hand surgery, it was always sports medicine that uh, kept coming, kept me coming back. Awesome, awesome. I love it. And uh, another question would be, what advice would you give to yourself at age 25? Oh, great question. Um, I think my advice would be, you know, stick with it. You know, all the effort and hard work and time will pay off. 
Um, you know, there will be uh, you know, throughout your education and training, there's definitely ups and downs. Uh, but once uh, you get to that light at the end of the tunnel, uh, life is good. So basically keep your head down, work hard, and things will work out. Oh, yeah, that's that's all awesome advice that I can even use uh, today. So that was good to hear. Um, but also I wanted to ask, uh, because I know this is a question that a lot of young orthopods go into training with, uh, what kind of made you choose to go towards the academic side of medicine versus uh, more private practice? That's a great question. Um, you know, from from pretty early on in my education, um, I was always very interested in research. Um, I've just never been okay with just accepting things for what we're told they are or the best way to do something just because that's how it's been done before. And I always thought that, you know, the research side of almost any field, but especially orthopedics, um, gives you the opportunity to raise questions um, on, you know, why things happen the way they do. Are we doing the best things for our patients to afford the highest percentage chance of a good outcome? And when you're, you know, you're investigating these kind of questions, you really are having not only an impact on your patients, um, but also patients all over the world and, the, you know, the discipline uh, as a whole. So I, th I thought that the reward of that kind of research activity through an academic uh, career um, was, you know, very worthwhile and always steered me in this direction. Like I said, from the time I was a med student, I chose a, a, a very academic um, orthopedic surgery residency at NYU. And thankfully, I've been able to continue with the academic side of things uh, throughout fellowship and now into practice uh, eight years later. Great, great. I love it. So I guess from from there, we can go ahead and switch into switch gears into what we're talking about today. And we're going to talk about the meniscus. So I wanted to kind of just give a general case presentation and then kind of ask you some questions. So let's say, uh, Dr. Strauss, you have a 29 year old female comes in your office. She has right knee pain and swelling. And she states that the pain started about three days ago after twisting her leg playing uh, playing soccer. What are some of the things that you would want to look for when you're asking this patient's history? And what are some of the things that we kind of want to look for on a physical exam? Totally. And obviously, that's an extraordinary, extraordinarily common presentation in my office, as you remember from your time with me. Um, so basically, a young, active uh, female uh, who comes in with knee pain and swelling after a twisting event, immediately you're kind of just tr figuring out a differential diagnosis in your head. And you know, at the very top of that list is going to be things like, you know, potentially an ACL injury, a patellar instability event, uh, but also right up there is going to be uh, pathology related to the meniscus. So with respect to the, the history, you want to ask, you know, did you hear or feel a pop? Because that would steer you uh, more in the direction of an ACL. Um, were you able to bear weight after the injury? Because um, that could also be, you know, something that would not be possible in the setting of an ACL tear or an acute first-time patellar dislocation. Um, how swollen did the knee get after the event? Because, you know, usually uh, a patellar instability uh, episode or an ACL tear is going to be associated with a very large effusion, where a meniscus tear is often uh, associated with swelling, but less so. I want to know were there any antecedent symptoms, like was this a knee that kind of was achy and sore? Um, and then this was an acute event, or is this knee perfectly fine before we had this uh, um, this injury? Um, I, I'd ask them, you know, once we've gotten that history kind of down, I'd ask them to localize their pain, hopefully pointing with one finger, um, and to see where that localizes to. Um, 
Is it, you know, right along the medial joint line? So along the lateral joint line? Is it nowhere near the joint line? These are all things that are going to kind of point you in a direction when you're doing the physical exam to highlight, you know, you know the etiology behind the patient's complaints. Um, you're also going to want to see, you know, you, with respect to um, their continued history, you know, is this is soccer like her passion? Like, what, is, what does she do for work? Um, has, you know, what's her medical history? Has she had any surgery before? You want to really, you can't just jump right at knee pain and swelling. You need to kind of paint the entire picture because not only is it important for coming up with the diagnosis, but also better understanding what the impact of this injury and potentially the necessary treatment is going to be on uh, her life as a whole. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. So then we're going to then, you know, then you're going to start with your classic physical exam, right? So it starts the second that patient, you know, is walking uh, into the room. Do they have a normal gait? Are they walking with a limp or they are on crutches? Have they been wheeled to your office in a wheelchair? These are all going to be like initial kind of glimpses into what's going on. Then I always, if you remember, I always have the patient stand up. And if they're on crutches, that's okay. But we want to stand up and see what their standing alignment is. You know, in the setting of a, uh, of a bad meniscus tear, they may not be able to extend their knee and they're holding their knee in what's called like a flex posture. Um, and, you know, you don't want to see, are they, in, are they varus? Are they bow-legged? Are they in excessive valgus? Are they knock-kneed? Um, then you'll have them lie down on the table and do a nice thorough exam going through everything you remember from med school, right? You're going to expect, is this a swollen knee? Can you make out the outline of the patella? Um, you're going to palpate. Is there an effusion present? Are they tender over the patella facets, the joint line? Um, then you'll basically do uh, a ligament, a lig ligament evaluation. And if, if you have a nice grade 1A Lachman, it's going to kind of, you know, limit your, you know, the, limit your thinking that this is an ACL injury. Similarly, you can put a little bit of laterally directed stress on the patella. If that's rock stable, you know, that's going to fall down lower on your differential, and then things are going to really hone in on that meniscus tear. Um, I don't really, you know, if you guys read in the textbook, about like a flexion McMurray or Apley's test. Those are basically just exam maneuvers that kind of grind the meniscus between the femur and the tibia. Mm -hmm. You know, I really don't do that. Um, I'm primarily just basing um, that suspected diagnosis on their history and what has been proven to be the most sensitive and specific finding, which is really joint line tenderness. So if this particular patient, like you're describing, comes in and she's holding her knee in a flex posture, and she's very tender along the medial joint line, especially posterior immediately, um, in the setting of having a, a normal Lachman and that patella stable with applied lateral directed stress, I'm thinking that this is a medial meniscus tear, possibly a displaced uh, tear. Um, so this is going to definitely require additional imaging. Okay, and that's actually a, a good way to transition to the next part. Uh, what, what kind of images would you, uh, you order on this, this patient? Great question. So there's a lot of places in the country where they stand, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, if you're coming in with knee pain, you're starting off with a set of plain x-rays, okay? Um, and, you know, we did a study actually at NYU that showed that that, that kind of blanket approach is, is not very cost-effective um, for diagnosing any knee pathology that, we, that is important to us in sports medicine. Um, for the most part, Unless the patient has a, a reports a traumatic event where you're concerned about fracture or they had a history of a prior surgical procedure or something that you're worried about, either bony pathology, um, retained hardware, things like that, plain x-rays in the setting of a, a female patient in her 20s with a suspected meniscus tear is, uh, is a waste of time and money. So the patient that you're describing for me 
purely based on her history and exam, that's going to go straight to an MRI. Now, if this patient was, was let's say, a 68-year-old patient or so, and it wasn't necessarily an acute injury, would you would you still would you want to do an X-ray in that case, or is it just because oh. you know the age of the patient? No, that's a hundred. That's the, the the new patient you're describing. That's a patient that absolutely gets uh, a set of plain X-rays as a screening tool, because odds are there's going to be some extent of osteoarthritis that's present. So in the study that we did um, on, on the utility of plain x-rays and evaluating the sports medicine patient with knee pain, basically under the age of 40, um, we really were not recommending plain films as a screening tool, but over 40 or any patient that had like a suspected fracture or prior history of surgery, that's who's going to get screening x-rays as part of the initial evaluation. So your first patient description, that 20-something-year-old with a twisting injury, she goes straight to MRI. Your second patient, lady in her 60s, where arthritis is likely present, she starts off with a screening x-ray. And, and what are some of the things that we kind of want to look for on an MRI? Well, with this patient, my primary concern is, number one, confirming that, or, or refuting that there's a meniscus tear. And based on the description, you know, is this a displaced tear, what they call a bucket handle tear, where there's displaced meniscus tissue uh, typically sitting in the intercondylar notch? Um, you're also going to obviously evaluate every other aspect of that knee. You, usually it's good for you guys starting out to have a kind of a systematic approach. So you're going to start off by, you know, scrolling through uh, each the coronal, the sagittal, the axials, and looking for various things. You want to make, you know, on your checklist, you're going to evaluate each of the ligaments. You're going to say, you know, did the ACL look okay? PCL, MCL, LCL. Um, you can look for the MPFL related to the, uh, the patella. Then you'll do a careful assessment of, that mini- of the menisci, both medially and laterally, looking for evidence of tears, and in this case, potentially a displaced tear. Um, the next thing you're going to look at is the articular surfaces. Uh, is there an associated cartilage injury present? Um, is there, you know, you look at the underlying bone marrow, uh, you typically on T2-weighted images. Are there areas where there's swelling in the underlying bone that could be indicative of an overlying injury? Um, I think if you go through, you know, step by step and look at each of those sequences, um, you're going to basically cover all your bases while at the same time helping you kind of like cross off things that you had developed on your differential that was purely based on history and physical exam. Right. So and, and now when you have this patient and you look and you find out that they have a meniscus tear, what would be your, your next steps? Well, well, how would you explain what a meniscus tear is, I guess, to a patient and then to the, the resident or the, you know, the physician population? What are the, you know, the different, um, the difference between like the medial and the lateral meniscus and, and you know, different, the blood supply of meniscus, like the actual meniscus itself? Totally fair. So if you remember from the time you're with me in the office, you know, uh, when I have a patient, I'm, go- I'm, I'm reviewing their MRI with you. We, it's always helpful to have, um, basically a, a, like a sawbones model of a knee right next to you. So you can basically show the patient the, you know, the four bones of the knee, the femur, the tibia, the fibula, and the, and the patella. And, you know, the models we use, the ends of the bones are covered with, uh, uh, with blue indicating articular cartilage. So I usually start with an explanation saying, you know, this is the cartilage that's functioning to distribute weight. And when this cartilage wears away, that's the definition of arthritis. And unfortunately, once it wears away, it doesn't have the capacity to regenerate. So we've developed these special pieces of cartilage um, called the meniscus um, to basically serve as shock absorbers and protect the cartilage that covers our bones. So you try and keep it very layman's terms, okay? 
and basically explain that there's two. The medial is more C-shaped, it's located on the inside of the knee, and the lateral is a little more O-shaped, uh, located on the outside part of the knee. And they function in distributing weight to protect that articular cartilage. And we go from there saying, you know, the, under, the, the issue that we come into with respect to the meniscus is that the blood supply is, is relatively poor with blood vessels only present in the outer 25% or so, making there basically be three zones where tears can happen. And then we run through kind of the red-red zone, which is the peripheral zone in the area where there's blood supply. And when tears are, uh, happen here, these are extremely amenable to uh, repair techniques that we have. Then the opposite end of the spectrum is the, all, all the way on the inner portion of the meniscus, that white-white zone where the blood supply is extremely poor. Um, these are areas where tears are less frequently repaired with sutures because of the lack of inherent capacity to heal. And then in the middle is that red-white zone where um, we've been pushing indications to repair more and more tears in these areas um, with various techniques to improve the blood supply and increase the likelihood uh, of a positive healing response. So I think by sitting there with the, with, the, with the model and reviewing the anatomy, the location of the blood supply and where tears can happen, you can then transition to actually showing them where their tear is based on the MRI, and that can help you kind of like transition into discussing, well, what kind of tear is this? Where is it located? What's its implication on my symptoms and function? And what do you suggest is the best treatment um, to get me back playing soccer and doing all the other things I want to do? Absolutely. And, and on that note, I, I know there are some literature out there, and I'm not sure is it, you know, uh, universally accepted, but I think there's something that shows that younger individuals tend to have more vascularized parts of their meniscus compared to older individuals. I guess it becomes like less vascularized as they get older. Is that ever taken into, uh, you know, into the process of determining what the treatment options would be for maybe a younger individual compared to an older individual? Well, I think it depends on how you're describing younger and older. So basically, you know, once the patient reaches skeletal maturity, their the blood supply to their meniscus is kind of is it's peripheral. It's, it's what it is. Um, whether or not that diminishes slightly as patients really age, that's you know that I don't think is yet to be fully elucidated. But bottom line is, if I have a young patient with a peripheral meniscus tear, I'm definitely more aggressive about treating it surgically than I would be about the same patient um, with like a um, a smaller white, white kind of tear, uh, and especially an older patient with more of a degenerative, uh, more of a degenerative pathology that's present. But uh, in, in if, you know, if we're going to play our, our, our sample patient uh, a little bit further, you know, if this is this a girl in her 20s with a, especially like a displaced bucket handle peripheral tear, that's something that not only am I going to recommend surgery for, I'm going to try to get her into the operating room as quickly as I can to increase the likelihood that not only is it repairable, but that'll get it to, that we can get it to heal. And, and quickly, I wanted to touch on the, the different fibers and the different types of tear. You know, there are different uh, fibers in the meniscus, some arranged circumferentially, radial. Can we quickly just touch over the different types of uh, tears, meniscus tears? Of course. So there's yeah, basically people characterize uh, meniscus tears by location, pattern, um, and size. So usually anything that's greater than a centimeter or so is going to potentially be significant with respect to impact on stability. We then typically, like I said, um, characterize meniscus tears based on location, whether it's red-red, red-white, or white-white. And that has implications as to repairability based on blood supply. 
And then we often talk about, you know, hair patterns. And a very common thing that we uh, do is, you know, we can show the patients almost even just look on a search engine, type in meniscus tear types, and you'll see the various kind of tears that are present. So, you know, a bucket handle tear or a very uh, a large longitudinal tear, um, that's one that's where there's a large amount of the meniscus that's displaced, um, typically 180 degrees from where the meniscus is supposed to sit. Um, you think of it like a bucket handle that can go back and forth on the, on the two uh, pivot points. Um, uh, very, another very common tear type is something called a radial tear, where the tear is basically perpendicular to the uh, meniscus uh, tissue, uh, leading to two large flaps present. Um, very commonly, we'll be taking care of something that's called an oblique flap tear, or other people call it a parrot beak tear. It's basically a big flap of meniscus that kind of traverses that white, white, red, white, and red, red zones. Um, there's another very, very common tear type called the horizontal cleavage tear, uh, where this is a split um, basically within the substance of the meniscus. So if you look at it from the top, like a bird's eye view, the meniscus would look totally normal. But if you look at it kind of, you know, head on, you could see it split, where there's a top leaflet and a bottom leaflet. Um, there are... We're increasingly recognizing the importance of what's called a root tear, and that's where the meniscus attachment to the underlying bone, which is very important for load distribution, uh, is evulsed, and it basically renders the meniscus uh, basically functionless. So we've been doing more and more root repairs. And then basically you can think of uh, any combination of these variants, whether it's like a flap tear with a horizontal cleavage component or a bucket handle with a little flap component, a radial component. These are basically called complex tears. So like I said, there's a ton of different varieties, but I think the key is going to be size, location, relative to blood supply, and then pattern. And really quick, when we talk about the root tears, are we talking about, are these going to be tears in the coronary ligaments that attach the, the, the meniscus to the, uh, to the underlying cartilage? No, this is actually a tear of the, the origin of the meniscus from the bone. Okay. So, you know, very commonly, uh, we've been doing more and more uh, repairs of the posterior root of the medial meniscus. So it's literally the very, the most posterior, the very back of the meniscus, where it originates from the bone. And it does have some connection to the coronary, coronary ligaments, but this is different. This is literally bony attachment of the meniscus. And an avulsion at that site has very bad implications on biomechanics. And it basically renders the patient like they're living without a meniscus. Uh, so we've been relatively aggressive about fixing these uh, root tears with, with these techniques for root repair to reestablish the ability of the meniscus to convert, you know, physiologic loads into hoop stresses that are then distributed to the bone. So that's a whole different topic that we can talk about. But bottom line is there's a lot of different meniscus tear types. Yes, definitely. I, we can tell. Um, but at this point, after we've, we've classified it, uh, we know what what type it is. I guess at this point, what are the treatment options for these types of uh, meniscus tears as well? And so that's obviously the next step in your office visit. So you're, you have your patient, that young active female, acute uh, injury. Um, you're going to run them through, you know, those the variables that we talked about. Um, in certain situations, like that displaced bucket handle tear, I don't, in my opinion, in a young person, there's really no, there's no non-surgical option there. Um, that's a patient that's going to go to the OR with the intention to reduce or flip back that meniscus 
um, and fix it with sutures if amenable. Um, the, the, the discussions really for those middle of the road tears, smaller tears, cleavage tears, um, small radial tears, where basically you can talk the patient through two uh, pathways. The non-surgical pathway would be a combination of things like a, a corticosteroid injection, and, uh, a short course of oral anti-inflammatories, and formal physical therapy working on range of motion, strength, and endurance. Um, with the hopes that you can kind of coax the body into forgetting about the fact that the meniscus is there and just basically tolerating normal function uh, despite the presence of a meniscus tear. All right, so the benefit of that approach is primarily that it's not surgical. Uh, two, it has a, you know, it has a success rate. Um, the downside is the pathology doesn't really change. Um, the operative approach for these kind of 50-yard line or, or gray area tears uh, would be um, is this something that you can fix, or is this something that's just going to require debridement? Um, how old is your patient? All those other factors uh, that are involved, their expectations, the quality of their articular cartilage in that compartment. Uh, but basically, if, you're, if it's going to be a trim, you're letting the patient know that you're going in and just trying to remove the torn portion with an attempt to preserve as much normal uh, meniscal tissue as you can. There are a ton of studies that show there's a linear relationship between how much meniscus is excised and the resulting contact stresses in that affected compartment. So the more meniscus that's injured and the more meniscus that has to be removed, the higher the likelihood that our is going to develop in that area subsequently. Now, how do you decide when you're when you're if you're going to actually repair a meniscus? Say you have an injury in the red red zone. And you want to do, and you want to fix it using sutures. How do you decide whether you want to place the sutures on on an inside out versus outside in, or like, well, how do you decide that? That's a great question. So it depends on what you're comfortable with. Um, it, the teaching used to be that the gold standard um, for meniscal repair would be an inside out approach using vertical mattress sutures. Okay. Um, more recent data shows that the the newer all inside approaches have a pretty much equal efficacy to that old, old, the old school inside out approach. So I think it ends up being dealer's choice. Um, for me, if I'm going to, uh, if you remember, for anything uh, that's going to require more than three or four of the all inside devices, I like to do uh, an inside out through a formal um, posteromedial or posterolateral approach to the knee uh, using like zone specific cannulas. Um, long two uh, sutures with needles with sutures. Um, if it, so basically, if it's going to require more than three or four all-inside devices, uh, in my opinion, I would go after it inside out using sutures, which I think is just as effective uh, and much cheaper. Uh, if it's something that I think I can fix with three or four or less of the all-inside devices, uh, that's my go-to. Um, I, I'm always very cognizant about trying to do a, what we call a balanced repair, so I have sutures both on the superior and inferior aspects of the meniscus. Um, and the part of it, the repair process that's always kind of glossed over but I think is really important is you need to take some time uh, and actually really prepare the tear site. Um, you want to get in there with the shaver. You want to get in there with a, uh, a synovial rasp or a meniscal rasp. Really get the edges of that tear on both sides the capsular side and the, the meniscal tear side, and you want to get it nice and clean with punctate bleeding surfaces uh, to really prepare that site to optimize the chance that it's going to heal. 
get excited and just run in there and fire in a bunch of stitches without preparing the tear site, the likelihood of it healing the way you want is very low. You're just going to potentially get spot welds at your uh, suture sites. If you do a nice job and really prepare the, uh, the bed of the, uh, the tear site, uh, you're going to increase the likelihood of a more complete repair that's going to last the test of time. Great. Got it. And I guess kind of to wrap up here, what would it, who would be a candidate for a meniscal allograft? Uh, you know, that's one of my favorite topics. So uh, <laughs> we, could spend, we, could spend, we could spend a long time talking about meniscal allograft transplantation. So, you know, for the last 15 to 20 years, we've made a lot of progress with respect to understanding, you know, the importance of the meniscus for normal knee function. And despite the fact that, just like we were just talking about, we've really been focusing on fixing meniscus tears whenever possible, uh, it's not uncommon to be faced with a tear that, you know, despite our best efforts, we're taking out a lot of tissue. And like I said earlier to you guys, you know, there's a linear relationship between how much meniscus is lost and the resultant stresses on the uh, cartilage in that area. If you have a patient that requires a very significant metastectomy, they're going to be at a significant risk for arthritis down the line. So when patients that have undergone these prior significant metastectomies and come in with pain or swelling or MRI evidence of early cartilage wear postoperatively, we've been offering them um, a meniscus allograft, where, you know, in short, basically a sized matched meniscus from a, a, a donor is implanted and fixed peripherally to the patient. And basically, you're trying to get that meniscus to, to incorporate and, and provide a shock absorbing function to protect that compartment over time. And it's something that we've been doing more and more of. And the, as our techniques have been refined and our, our understanding of the appropriate indications, really paying attention to like malalignment and concomitant ligament injuries. In the perfect patient, uh, a meniscus allograft does, uh, does tremendously well. Does your uh, treatment plan change if there is some ligamentous instability noted as well with the uh, meniscal? Tear? A hundred percent. Yes, you are correct. That's a, that's a talk on its own. But you have to realize that in the, uh, in, that, you know, in, and especially the ACL, the ACL is extremely important uh, as the primary stabilizer of the knee. If you have an ACL tear um, or a poorly done or insufficient ACL reconstruction, uh, that ends up putting a lot of stress, especially on the posterior horn of the medial meniscus. So when we're dealing with meniscus pathology, we're, we're paying attention very carefully uh, to the status of the ligaments uh, in addition to the patient's uh, overall alignment, the status of the cartilage. It all plays into that big, the big picture uh, when you're trying to optimize their outcome. Cool. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Charles. It's been a, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And again, thank you so much for coming up and uh, talking about the meniscus with us and, and our listeners for today. We got it, man. Thanks for having me. Guys, thank you for listening to that episode of Nailed It Podcast. Hope you guys know everything about the meniscus. Go ahead and answer all those pimp questions. Get all those questions right. Please don't forget to follow us at Nailed It Ortho on Instagram, as well as you can email us at NailedItOrtho at gmail.com. And for the show notes, again, go to NailedItOrtho.com. If you are listening and you are hearing some type of um, some type of consistency here is because everything is nailed at ortho. All right, guys. Until next time.